Welcome back, guys, to Una. Uh, I'm Shivani Umesh, your high school junior podcast host. And in this episode, we'll be discussing sort of a career in research and advocacy. Um, Dr. Hawk, do you want to add anything before we begin? No, I'm excited to be here. Thank you. Yeah, so um, Dr. Hawk, let's uh, jump into the heart of the conversation, um, specifically about your journey into public health. Um, you've definitely sort of had like a journey uh, that most careers don't, and I think almost everyone has like a unique um, you know, journey or a path to their career in public health. Um, and so sort of my uh, first question to you is, um, is uh, sort of from being a teenager to where you are now, what was your like journey into healthcare? Um, what sort of made you wanted to get into the career where you are now? Yeah, so uh, I think you're right. I think there is no one clear path to any career, honestly. Mm-hmm. But I would say that my career started, um, you know, at a younger age uh, in high school, early college. I was certainly very interested in thinking about how to support other people, how to help people in kind of a nebulous way. Um, I didn't know terms like social justice. I was thinking about things like social work and counseling. Mm -hmm. And um, then in my undergrad program, which was at Penn State University, I had some friends that were involved in sexual health education programming. Uh And so I started getting involved in some like peer education programs around contraceptive support and um, sexual health awareness in general. Mm-hmm. And along the way, I started learning about HIV. So completely dating myself, it was really the height of the epidemic when I started my my journey into HIV. Uh-huh. And as I said, I didn't know the term social justice, but it became really sort of angry and anxious about the fact that people who were most at risk for HIV were people who were really set up to a also not not um, be well-sustained in HIV treatment. But Mm -hmm. I was also thinking a lot about the fact that it was not at all about behaviors. It was all about conditions that predispose someone for being infected Uh with HIV. So access to testing, access to care, social support, uh, poverty, all of these things that are really outside of our locus of control, our personal locus of control much of the time. Uh, Mm -hmm. So that's how I started, you know, getting into this work. Um, Initially, Mm -hmm. I was thinking about my work as ways of supporting people on a one-on-one basis, so I became involved in social work and uh, case management. But then I started thinking about uh, more, I guess you would say, macro levels of intervention, and that's what got me to the world of public health. Yeah, and um, like you said, you you first started out with like uh, social work and um, like you said, like case management. And so what would you sort of give to advice for teenagers who want to explore these like sort of um, different environments and and healthcare or medicine, like, you know, sort of environments that aren't typically conventionally like set in a hospital. Um, Like, and I know you were saying how you were talking about how you were interested in like social disparities for HIV. Um, And so like, yeah, what sort of advice would you give to teenagers? Like, um, because it's, it's very hard for teenagers now to um, get like experience in a hospital, especially after the pandemic. So if they're really interested in social work, like you said, um, like what sort of paths should, should they go through or resources that they could find out? Yeah, so absolutely. Anytime you can volunteer or intern somewhere 
I think that's really crucial because that's how mm -hmm. we learn what really sparks our passion, what sparks our joy, where we can make the most impact. I think it's really um, difficult to know what you want to do, kind of like what you want to do when you grow up, right? Like mm -hmm. I feel like I am still trying to figure that out, what I want to be when I grow up, even though I'm by any standard of growing up already. <laughs> I had a pretty major career change about 10 years ago, which is when I left the nonprofit world and joined academia. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of a random experience for me. So I was working with someone on a grant proposal mm -hmm. and I uh, was interested in getting more skills around program evaluation. And this individual said to me, you should check out this evaluation certificate at the public health. And that oh. began my journey into academia. So it just goes to say that, um, you know, I think it's important to be open to mm -hmm. new opportunities. My, I, I never expected to find myself as an academic academic or to be doing research. Um, but for me, it was kind of like, well, this seems intriguing and maybe I could do some good in the world. So I'll try it and see what happens. So I, I like that approach of mm -hmm. trying things and seeing what happens and seeing if it's a <laughs> place for you. Um, so absolutely interning, volunteering every chance you can, I think is really important. Building your networks, talking with people. There are a lot of great people in the world that are interested in supporting you as teams, yeah. as young people and helping sort of build, um, I mean, it sounds cheesy, but really building our future, right? Like we want to make sure <laughs> that young yeah. people are invested and, uh, you know, in it, in it for the right reasons, collectivism, yeah. social justice, all those things. Mm -hmm. And I completely agree with, like you're saying, with volunteering, because like that's definitely something that you don't have to do in a hospital setting, but you can do so much with it, um, especially like, you know, just different like environments in healthcare, whether you're helping like, you know, set a, setting up for like a vaccination clinic or, you know, helping in, um, in a hospice center or retirement home, like sort of any sort of experience that you can um get I, I think definitely like in a non-hospital setting is, is always valuable like you said and in a way it's always just social work and and benefiting the population so so yeah i completely agree i would also say that even if you felt like your career path was you know you wanted to be a physician these experiences mm -hmm. working community settings working with individuals would certainly increase your value in applying to med schools but also mm -hmm. increase your ability to see how to provide care to people because yeah. our systems of care are often not um, even systems, like sometimes they're just very disconnected. And I think it's really easy to lose sight of the individual at the end of the care, right? So it's really mm -hmm. important to build those connections and gain those understandings early. Yeah. So, uh, Dr. Hawk, um, in this uh, podcast, we often like to uh, provide education or any kind of like like knowledge in order to get like teenagers better understanding the field of healthcare um, in the present day. Uh, I mean, these sort of like question or like this sort of like knowledge doesn't like easily come by um, through like a classroom or a course, especially in high school, probably in college, but especially in high school, it doesn't come by very easily. So sort of my first question was that um, looking over your website, I saw that much of your research sort of involved um, looking at the social determinants of health. So for the listeners who don't know what this big vocabulary word means, could you sort of elaborate on that definition and um, sort of say, like, what does that look like in our world right now, like these social determinants of health and, and how does it affect healthcare? Mm -hmm. 
So when we talk about social determinants, we're thinking about all of the things that could set the conditions um, or produce environments. Um, I, I should say create environments in which health behaviors are produced. So mm -hmm. too often when we're thinking about people's health outcomes, we're really focused on their specific health behaviors. So for example, if I'm sedentary or I overeat, perhaps I'll increase, increase my risk for things like diabetes, obesity, mm -hmm. heart disease. But it's really important to think about not just why I may be overeating and sedentary, but all of the factors that contribute to that behavior upstream, the more distal factors, as we call them. And mm -hmm. so there's this great model called the socio-ecological model. It's called different things according to different authors. authors. <laughs> but basically, the model suggests that health is produced in a series of um, contexts. So my health behaviors mm -hmm. are influenced by my interpersonal relationships. So that could be with my family, whether or not my family is active, how, like what cultural foods we eat. Um, also by my peer supports, like what am I doing with my friends? But mm -hmm. those interpersonal relationships are in turn affected by our community relationships and the built environment, oh. right? So do I have access to green foods? Can I? Uh, am I living in a community where food is accessible and environmental, mm -hmm. uh, affordable? Um, am I in a space where it's safe for me to take walks or even run outside, right? Is the built environment yeah. a safe place for me to operate in? And then we can look even further upstream and think about what policies are in place to make sure that I have safe housing, that I have a safe place to, um, uh, to live, to, to access food. And mm -hmm. You know, I feel like when I entered the School of Public Health about 10 years ago, um, there was a local neighborhood in Pittsburgh um, where mostly African-Americans live and people were all up in arms about healthy eating, but there was no grocery store. Like, why are we really holding yeah. people responsible for their food choices when they don't have access to safe and, and healthy food, right? Mm -hmm. um, so it's really looking at the whole continuum of health and also making sure that across all of those levels of health, of environment, we're thinking about the impact of policy, um, thinking how our behaviors in turn like affect policy upstream, mm -hmm. and also just being really, um, I think, person-centered throughout, because it's really easy for us to look at others, to otherize people, and not yeah. think about um, why people participate in behaviors. Mm -hmm. uh, no one does anything unless it affords them some benefit, right? Yeah. So I do a lot of work in substance use. Um, and I think, well, I know for a fact that our culture really demonizes substance use. We have moral feelings about substance use. Um, we just think it's wrong and people should not do it, but mm -hmm. no one uses substances without affording, without benefiting in some way. So we really need to figure out in those uh, examples, what it is that people are deriving that helps them in using substances, supporting uh -huh. them and not using substance anymore, reducing their substance use if that's what they want to do. Um, mm -hmm. but if they want to keep continuing substance use, then thinking about how we can optimize health in the context of their ongoing use. Um, so just one example of trying to think about how health behaviors are created, but also in, in considering how we can improve health behaviors without making assumptions about what's best for other people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and I think that the, a lot of the factors that you just described are definitely like things that like, like, you know, in our minds that we definitely have like the sort of, um, 
the definition of what health is, like what a healthy person should be and like, you know, healthy habits and all that. But like you said, it, sometimes you just don't have access to all that. And uh, we can't like put the blame on um, put the blame on another individual, but like sort of like look through their eyes uh, instead. Um, and, and sort of like looking deeper into your research specifically um, about like homeless people and HIV, what are some like problems or um yeah, sort of problems in in healthcare or like in society that like most people don't know about about like the topic of like um, especially like homeless people with HIV. So you know that it there in most cities uh, across our country there is a lack of access to safe and affordable housing, mm-hmm. and we know there are lots of problems with employment, especially now. We know that structural racism prevents lots of people from being. Um, having access to education that sets them up for gainful uh-huh. employment. We also know that it's hard for historically oppressed populations to get jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so all these create conditions again, where it's hard for people to remain housed, to have safe housing, to have housing that's comfortable, to have housing where their um, committee members can stay with them. There's a great book by Dr. Mindy Thompson Fulov called Root Shock, which is all about ways that um, people in our city of Pittsburgh who lived in the Hill District were um, separated from their communities when the Hill District was redeveloped to make you room for the oh. old uh, Mellon Arena. So um, Root Shock refers to the idea that you know if people, if neighborhoods are displaced due to a natural disaster like an earthquake. They need a lot of empathy and support. But when communities are displaced due to gentrification, there's no support there, right? And we yeah. also think about, even if we're thinking about the fact that people need homes, we not, may not be thinking about the fact that we also need to reconstruct communities. Mm-hmm. Um, so certainly there are lots of policy factors at play, certainly an impact of structural racism that's causing homelessness to um, persist. And when we think about the impact of homelessness on health, it's like, uh, it's just, it's it's what we call a wicked problem in public health, right? Like housing is yeah. healthcare. We need safe and affordable housing to be healthy. Mm-hmm. Also underlying all of this again is uh, stigma and bias because when people mm-hmm. grow up in unstable housing, they don't have access to, um, things like social networks mm-hmm. that can help them um, be successful in education and, and housing. So it's just like really a very uh, complicated mess of factors that set yeah. some communities and some individuals up to not thrive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, and I definitely that's, think that's your question. Yeah, yeah. No, it sort of it, it definitely does cuz um like you like you were t- talking about like gentrification. I don't even think most teenagers know what that even is, especially like um those who don't exactly live in the city um cuz I myself am from a suburban area, but um so so we don't quite understand what that like typically means, but but you explained it like really well about how like sort of it is displacing communities, um not necessarily in the way of like a in a natural disaster and um people just don't really, you know, pay attention or or really know about gentrification that much and, and how that can affect um healthcare. Yeah. Yeah. So, 
Dr. Hawk, something that we do um, in this podcast that I think is really important is that we sort of talk about current issues in our world um, and how medicine or healthcare sort of interacts with them. Um, and it, especially in this day and age uh, in social media, there's a lot of facts being thrown around, um, whether it be in relation to the pandemic or to the Roe v. Wade overruling or, you know, sort of to any topic regarding healthcare. Um, but most of the time, especially among like teenagers who don't exactly know um you know, medical like facts, like misinformation is being spread around. So we like to hear opinions from um, the experts in the field uh, to, to sort of clear things up and, and give us a better knowledge about it. Um, so I guess like the one main thing that's sort of been in our minds for the past like two, three months is the Roe v. Wade overruling. Um, and especially I liked how you talked about uh, previously about like the social determinants of health, but, but what are maybe some like factors, uh, once I guess uh, these like state laws are, are starting to go into play and like restricting access to abortion, how do you see, um, or what are some factors maybe that you could see that could affect women trying to get um, abortion, maybe like socioeconomic factors, like, uh, or, or factors that most people aren't aware about? Hmm. Well, I'm not sure if this is exactly what you're asking, but I'm just going to share some thoughts about Go ahead, go ahead. I mean, in terms of access to abortion care and reproductive health care in general, Certainly, policies like Roe restrict, like that's the major thing, right? Mm -hmm. And so we're already seeing in Pennsylvania where abortion is still provided, women from other states trying to come here to get abortions, but they need transportation, they need health insurance, they need money, right? So Mm -hmm. we're setting up even greater inequities in healthcare with this policy. I will also say that um, since this is sort of like the opinion segment of our discussion today, I'll share my opinion, which is that um, there are lots of people in our country who feel like Roe being overturned is the right decision. And as far as I can tell, people that are behind the overturning of Roe are largely um, feeling that way because it aligns well with their religious beliefs, which uh-huh. is a right that we all have. Like, like right, our, right. our rights to religious beliefs are protected. Mm-hmm. The problem there is that if you believe that um, abortion should be prohibited because it aligns with your religious beliefs, but you also believe America is so-called the land of the free, you really need to dig deeper because those Mm -hmm. those two things don't go together. If you believe in people's individual rights, then you cannot also believe that abortion rights should be not afforded, should not be Mm -hmm, protected, mm -hmm. right? Because that is an individual right. And we right. also know that we have se- separation of church and state, which says that your religious beliefs should not inform our political underpinnings. Oh. So those things don't go together, right? Mm-hmm. I would also say this is an incredibly slippery slope. This is not just about abortion care, right? This is about reproductive health care. We're mm-hmm. already seeing some bills being put out there in which um, contraceptive care would be prohibited. So yeah. let's think about what that looks like. That means that not just that women will be forced to not only carry pregnancies, but also to become pregnant, mm-hmm. uh, whether or not they want to, that is gonna change our workforce. And if you if you think, like, I just, I just think we don't have to go very far down this path before we see how we'll all be personally affected by mm-hmm. being forced to um, 
to not just carry pregnancies, but to become pregnant Mm -hmm. or to father a child, you know, like this affects not just women, but men as well. And then if we look a little bit further, we can also think, look at things about personal privacy uh, uh, protections um, for our relationships. We see that gay marriage is now um, at risk of being threatened. Mm -hmm. It's just incredible how slippery of a slope this is. And then if you still think that you're not affected by all of these things, um, then also think about the fact that you will be economically affected, right? So we are, Mm -hmm. even though we're not behaving like it right now, especially in the context of the pandemic, we are a society in which we live together. We Mm -hmm. really need to preserve some collectivism. So even if you don't care about people that you can't see, even if you don't care about people that are not a part of your personal community or whatever mm-hmm. community you identify with, you really need to care because if, if you're so self, like inwardly focused, then think about the fact that our economy is going to change when we have more um, children that need to be supported by people who cannot any longer be gainfully em- employed. Um, I don't think we want to live in the world, in a world where there's even more homelessness, where there's even more poverty, where our healthcare premiums are soaring because Mm -hmm. costs of care are just phenomenal, where we can't get into hospitals as we've been seeing with the pandemic because there are Mm -hmm. so many sick and dying people. Like this is an incredible domino effect as it should be. We are part of a global community. We're part of a national community. We're part of a citywide community. We really need to be thinking about how to protect each other and ourselves as part of protecting each other. Yeah, and and I was talking to, um, and all the points that you brought up were were definitely, you know, looking forward, looking ahead to the future, because like right now, um, even though it does, because I was thinking like just reading off of the news, the just the legal ambiguity right now of the, of the overruling, because some laws have like, tr- some states have trigger laws and some states don't. And it's just now that giving the rights back to the states, like it's creating a lot of um like I said, ambiguity in that, like, I've already heard of some stories over the internet um, uh, about like, you know, sort of hindrance to, to patient care from from physicians, because they're just not sure if, if they're able to like perform some of these medical procedures. Um, some of these physicians feel that they might get like prosecuted or, uh, you know, put against the law if, if they do, which is just ultimately like gonna um, hinder or become a consequence of a patient outcome. But I think what also um, is important was that uh, another physician or an OBGYN that I had on the podcast, she went into detail about how, um, you know, these women who would now, you know, obviously restricting abortion, more and more women would be probably becoming pregnant, is that after pregnancy, there's still another like set of obstacles that they have to go through, like mentally and physically, you know, postpartum. Um, a lot of these, uh, most women have postpartum depression. And and especially as she was an OBGYN, she was telling me that like, you know, women after pregnancy have very little care. They, they're they only required to like, I think have very few meetings and and all the research, you know, should be, it should be put towards like helping these women rather than, um, you know, restricting access to, to abortion. And so I think like there's definitely other, instead of like focusing on the specific aspect of abortion and trying to restrict it, there's so many other aspects of healthcare that like more research and more solutions and more policy making could be put towards to, 
to have better outcomes. For sure. Nobody wants abortion, right? Like nobody wants to have an abortion. No one is in favor of abortion. No one celebrates abortion. We celebrate the right to reproductive right. to reproductive care, right? And so if you're worried about children, then let's make sure we're creating communities where children can thrive, where children are protected, where children have housing, where children are fed, where children have healthcare, where children grow up to be men and women and non-binary individuals who have all of the rights that we all want to have, that we all strive for. Um, If you want to not have uh, unwanted pregnancies, then preserve contraceptive freedom right? Like that is so incredible to me that, you know, if you want there to be no or fewer abortions, then let's have free legal contraceptive access. Let's have sexual health education that is really considering the full spectrum of sexual health and not Mm -hmm. just not how to get an STI, not just Mm -hmm. just say no, not just just wear a condom. None of these things are feasible, Mm -hmm. are realistic ways of dealing with sexual health. Yeah. And, and I also think sort of going back to like how you're talking about like um, the social determinants of health, especially like looking at, um, at abortion, like I had read in a couple of articles that like, you know, since it's more of like a state, like, uh, yeah, so more it's like a state law now that it's like up to state to state. Um, if you want to get an abortion, say like in a scenario and your state like uh, is sort of restricting or banning abortion, you would always have to go across state lines to, to get the procedure done. But some people just don't have the luxury for that. Um, like, you know, maybe uh, some people don't have a car or don't have enough money to like uh, have a bus fare all the way over to like another state. So it's more over affecting like the people who were in in poverty or in a lower like sort of socioeconomic status than than it is all women um and ultimately like hindering them more so i i yeah i mean they're just like there's a lot of factors to consider and i definitely think like many other physicians that i've talked to have said that like um abortion or, or sort of any sort of medical procedure or medical like circumstance i mean it's just not a catch-all rule you know every woman has woman has like their own experience with childbirth abortion pregnancy and each case is its own so sort of having a catch-all rule or catch-all law um definitely probably won't won't help healthcare um in the, in the future no i mean a couple comments about that i would say are that um you know, first of all, we're never going to extinguish abortion. Abortion is always going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to happen in two ways. One is wealthy uh, women, wealthy families, um, especially those with privilege, including white privilege, mm-hmm. are going to have access to safer abortions. They'll call it something else. They'll have networks that help them. Mm-hmm. Um, but to your point, women in poverty will only have access to illegal, unsafe abortions. They will die at alarming rates. Their children will continue to be born. Um, It it will just set up greater inequities, Mm -hmm. but there has never been a period throughout our world history where abortion didn't happen. There is no reason to think that overturning Roe is gonna stop abortion. It's just gonna stop healthy abortions, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Secondly, if you are really someone, you know, when I hear that people want to protest abortion rights, I want to say to them, what have you done to help young mothers yourself? Are you mm-hmm. taking on foster children? Are you adopting all the children who are born to families who can't raise them in healthy environments? Um, are you empathizing? 
Are you funding women who mm-hmm. can't afford food for their children? Or are you looking at them as, oh, you know, I would never live in that, that lifestyle. As we know from the social determinants of health conversation, mm-hmm. there are lots of reasons why people don't have access to safe um, uh, uh, contraceptive care and why people can't even make choices about whether or not they're having sex, whether or not they're having safer sex. Um, it's just so complicated. And I fear that we're treating this as like a one dimensional issue when it's a multi-dimensional issue. Yeah. Um, yeah. So thanks for the very insightful conversation, um, Dr. Hawk. Uh, definitely like um, uh, there's a lot of terms that you brought up, like social determinants of health that I'm almost positive a lot of teenagers have not seen before or heard in their uh, education in high school before. So um, that definitely does open our views uh, towards healthcare a lot more and sort of looking at it from a broader perspective and and ultimately having more empathy, you know, towards um people in other circumstances than us and and not really you know judging because everyone has their own experience like you said um everyone has like uh sort of yeah their own experience their own ways of like dealing through whatever they're dealing with in life um and ultimately i guess our goal or probably your goal um and many other experts in and healthcare's goal is probably just to make healthcare better for for the united states um and for our country so um so, yeah, so thank you for educating our, our viewers. Uh, do you have anything to add before we end? I mean, I would just say that I believe that we're all, I mean, this sounds kind of doom and gloom, but I think that we're all kind of one step away, one decision away from a harmful health behavior or a harmful health outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, but also keep in mind, it's not just about that one decision or that one step. It's all about everything that leads up to that step or decision. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the end of the day, we're not, um, what makes us the same or different is not who we are as individuals or where we live. It's all of the things, those, um, multiple levels of determinants that we discussed about, discussed, discussed previously, Mm -hmm. uh, that create the situations we're in right now. So I really hope that we can get back some of that spirit of collectivism that I think, you know, our, our founding fathers and mothers, you know, yeah. um, idealized. We seem to have lost so much of that in the past six years. Um, it's it's mm-hmm. pretty devastating. Yeah.